We are starting a new uh, series on parables. I love the stories of Jesus. The stories of Jesus are so impactful for me because what they do is with piercing conviction and yet such normalcy in mundane topics, they relate to our lives 2,000 years later every single time. And today we're going to be looking at what I think is probably my favorite of all of the parables. It's in Luke chapter 15, and as you turn to Luke 15, some of you may know that in the chapter, Jesus uses three parables to make his point. The first, he talks about a lost coin. A woman loses a coin in her house. She searches everywhere until she finds the coin. The second is of a lost sheep. This is a shepherd who has 99 in the fold. They're good for the night, but one is missing, and so he leaves the 99, and in reckless love, can't believe he just said that, um, he goes out to find the one. And then we come to the third parable of Luke 15. Now Jesus is teaching these parables, as it will say in 15, 1 and 2, to tax collectors and sinners. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And what does that do? That makes the Pharisees and the scribes upset. Verse 2, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus, in this room, you guys can be the Pharisees and scribes. You guys can be the tax collectors and sinners. He begins, I think I set that up right. Okay, yeah, that looks good to me. Uh, Cameron, will you switch? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) That was a joke. I love you. Not a good one. Uh, we, We have here Jesus teaching, and I would imagine it's even middle school dances, right? Like, they don't even want to be close to them. And so Jesus has this eclectic group that he is now teaching. And so he begins a story. Chapter 15, verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of this property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and he took a journey far to a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. Loses everything. And then a severe famine hit. It arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So, verse 15, he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs were eating. And no one gave him anything. Verse 17, when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, His father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and he embraced him and he kissed him. And the son started in on his speech, said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. 
And the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and put shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. Why? For this son was dead and is alive again, for he was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. But the story doesn't end there. Remember, this man doesn't have one son but two. Now his older son was in the field, and he and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. The servant said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But the son was angry and refused to go in. His father goes out to him and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And his father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Let me pray as we dive into this text. Lord, teach us from your word this morning what we need to hear. Show us the truth that needs to resonate in our hearts and change how we live tomorrow. Lord, we're asking for your presence and we're asking for your wisdom to be laid on us now. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. We have three characters in this story. And so this morning we're going to start with the younger son. That's where Jesus starts the story. The younger son, in his arrogance, believes Life is better without my father. So he goes to him and pretty much says, I wish you were dead. In fact, you are dead to me. So why don't you just go ahead and give me what I would get when you die? Give me your, my inheritance, sell some of your property, liquidate some of your assets so that I can have what is going to come to me on that glorious day when you are no longer in my life. So he gets the possessions. We don't understand, Jesus doesn't elaborate on why the son feels this way. Why does he hate his father? Why does he want to leave where the family is? Does he simply want freedom to live as he wants? Or does he believe that life is better out from under the hand of his father? That if he could just live away from the Father, he could enjoy happiness and fruitfulness and the best life. So, he receives his inheritance and he leaves town. Out of sight, out of mind, out of town he goes. He goes to a distant land wanting nothing to do with anybody he has ever known. Do the tax collectors and sinners resonate with this? Maybe the tax collectors have abandoned their family... Maybe they've left their Jewish heritage so that they can now be a servant of Rome and it's worked out for them, right? They are now rich. They are t reaping the benefit of taking advantage of their own people. They've said, you know what? My old life is dead to me. I'm going to now pursue this. But for others, it probably hasn't worked out. For the sinners, known sinners, for people who would have been looked down on as the scum of the earth, they probably resonate with the younger son when everything hits the fan, right? When, when everything goes wrong, 
they can recognize that living this life and pursuing this doesn't always lead to the best life or what we thought. The arrogance of the younger son thought freedom was the way to happiness, but he quickly runs out of his backing for freedom. His spending spree on reckless living, wild living, his brother will say on prostitutes and partying, that runs out really quickly, and then the famine hits, right? So he's already empty, he's already without, and then severity comes upon the land like they had never seen. He chooses to go and work for a Gentile man. The Pharisees are not happy with that. Then he chooses to work in the pigsty. Even the tax collectors and sinners know that that's a no-no. So here he is, completely unclean, abandoning his heritage, working where he ought not be, hopeless, tired, broken, empty. This is what Jesus is causing us to see. This is the depth of the pit that the man has fallen into. What promised happiness has now dead-end into misery. Freedom has not proven to be fruitful. So now, it says in verse 17, it says, He came to himself. Uh, If you're reading your NIV, it'll say, He came to his senses. Some of you may read that and go, Okay, this is just a logical step. He's hopeless, so now he's just going to turn to family. Maybe they'll bail him out. But what we miss is, when we don't speak Greek, is that Jesus is really using language of remorse and repentance. It's not just he came to a logical place where this land's not going to help me out. I should probably go back and just see what happens there. No, the son realizes I am in a hopeless place and I have gotten here. My sin, my choices have brought me to this intersection and I need to turn, I need to repent, and I need to go back. Do you see the humility it takes to return to the one that you said, I wish you were dead? To the one that you hurt the most, now you're seeking help from. Very few of us are willing to live with that much humility. To admit our failure, to admit our defeat, to turn and to say, I was wrong. I need help. The younger son starts working on his apology as he is going down the road. Father, I have sinned against heaven. I have sinned against you. Don't make me a son. Just make me a servant. Treat me as a servant. He he is ready to do this. A servant would have been the lowest in the totem pole. He doesn't have a salary job. He doesn't have a sure job. No, he's more of a seasonal worker that gets hired in harvest times. This is all the son is asking for. Is he hoping that if he proves responsible and faithful and hardworking that maybe he will be accepted, that maybe he can earn a wage, that maybe he can earn a spot back? The son has no intentions of seeing redemption and reconciliation. He just simply wants a meal. And in humility, he returns. I always love it because the son is greeted not with harshness and cruelness, but with love and mercy and grace. Did he know the character of his father that he was returning to? That love would be waiting on him? That acceptance and grace would be there? I don't think he fully understood it because he's talking up, just make me a servant. The son returns home. 
he is interrupted with the best of clothes because he's an honored guest. He is interrupted with a ring reinstating his authority on the farm. He is interrupted with shoes on his feet because those signify that he's family, not hired. Then he's interrupted with a party, the fattened calf, that reserved for celebration, for this most special moment. That is what he returns home to. Now, as the tax collectors and sinners sit and hear this story, some of them begin to realize there's hope for me yet. That I've not ruined my chance, that I have not lost my hope, that no matter how dire, no matter how terrible my situation is, it can change. But then I bet you there's some in that audience that go, oh, wow, I got a free pass. So when things get terrible, when things get bad, when I hit when I hit uh, the bottom, what is it? You got it, Kalen. Way to go. When I hit that thing, there's hope for me yet. When rock bottom is reached, I have a free pass out. See, there's people that want to abuse grace and there's people that want to accept grace. I don't know which one you are. The younger son was not seeking to abuse it, but now when we read this story, we have others that do want to do that. He returns home. And that introduces us back to that older son. See, if we read the prodigal son and Jesus stopped the story here of celebration, many of us would be so happy we would tell our lost friends this, but we would never feel any conviction. Prodigal son's not for me, but the last seven verses make sure that the prodigal son story is for all of us. Whether we're a wayward son or whether we are the one that's been at home or at the house the whole time. Tyler introduced me to a new term a couple weeks back. She was in her seminary class and they talk about repulsive grace. Let that sink in for a second. The repulsive grace of God. You may go, wow. I'm already upset you said reckless love. Now you're using repulsive grace. You just probably need to get off stage for a little bit. That's a hard uh, phrase to swallow. But the older brother personifies it well, doesn't he? I'm going I'm to hypothesize here for a second. When I have lived as the older brother, I don't know if Jesus actually says this or feels this, but here's how I read it. When I believe I'm the older brother, here's what I feel. Jealousy towards the younger brother because he got to experience sin that I'm too afraid to commit. I am jealous, not just of the fattened calf in celebration. I am jealous that he's got to live the life I've wanted to, but I'm too afraid to. He's gotten to experience Yeah, I don't want the pig part, but the parties and prostitute part, I think when I see the older brother, he goes, yeah, I wish a little bit. He doesn't live recklessly, but I think he longs to. We were in the Beatitudes last weekend looking at some stuff, and there's a line in there, I think it's about Matthew 5, 6, it says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Jacob and I were sitting this week talking in our discipleship time, and I said, you know what, Jacob? You know what I hunger and thirst for? Sin. 
That's what my soul pants for. That's what I long for. And so, you know, I spend my life on a diet of sin, trying to limit my intake. But do you know what Jesus calls us to do? To hunger and thirst for righteousness. When I see myself as the older brother, I don't see myself as one. Or I see him hungering, thirsting for what the other brother has gotten to experience. That's why he's repulsed by the grace of his father. He has gotten to party without punishment. And we're jealous. Repulsive grace. He is furious over how his father reacts. To personify it a little bit, the older brother is saying, I have done everything right. I have listened, I have obeyed, I have worked hard, I did my job, and I never got anything for it. I never wished you were dead, I never handcuffed our operation because I made you liquidate before you were ready. I have been here every day, all day, working hard, and yet I've got nothing. And this good-for-nothing scoundrel you call a son gets a celebration when he comes home? No. That is not right. I've never even gotten a young goat. I never got anything extra. All I got was what I deserved, and that's not fair. That's not right. What is wrong with you? I'm the golden child. I'm the good one, and we're celebrating the black sheep? Are you blind? Are you dumb? Have I not made you proud? Have I not earned your attention and affection? Have I not earned your love? What do I have to do? I don't know what else I can do. The older brother is ticked. I wonder if the older brother even loves the father or if he just loves the blessings of the father. He doesn't seem to have relationship. He just wants the rights and the rewards. He has spent his life trying to earn what we have to understand is that this, this parable is a parable of two sons, of two lost sons. One who left and blew it all, and one who stayed home and missed it all. These two lost sons don't understand what kind of father they have. See, they're both lost. Sure, the older brother has lived in the house, but he's never been at home with his father. He's grown frustrated and jealous and angry in his heart. I don't think he loves his father. I think he has to work for him. Is that how we view God? The love of God, I'm going to throw this on the screen, is something we have to learn to accept, not earn. It doesn't need to be earned. And here's why. The love of God is a birthright, not an earned right. Some of you and me have spent our life trying to earn what we've already been given. Trying to prove ourselves for what's already been bestowed. And Satan tempts us to despair and tells us, well, we lost it all. And God says, no, 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 you're my son. The last two months has probably been um, the most highs we've had with our little three-year-old Cooper and the lowest lows that we've had with our three-year-old Cooper. 
he has, uh, as he is growing, is growing a personality and an attitude and an affection. And all of these things are good and bad at the same time. And over the last few months, we have had to probably um, put him in timeout. We have probably had to pop him. We have probably been hit more, kicked more, pinched more, and slapped more than we ever have in the last three and a half years. Hope it gets better. But here's what I promise you, and what Carlin and I will tell you, no matter how frustrated I get, and I get really frustrated about 2.30 in the morning, especially on back-to-back nights, but there's something in me that no matter how frustrated I get as I begin to come down, that I just have to tell him I love him and to give him a hug. There's nothing he can do to stop me from loving him. He told me this morning, I said, I love you, Cooper. He says, I don't love you, Dad. That's kind of like the, I wish you were dead a little bit. Not all the way there yet, uh, but we're getting close. Uh, I don't know what Carlin's teaching him, but it's catching. Um, I don't love you, Dad. I love you, buddy. And the parents in this room... They understand this. It is a birthright. He has received my love as a birthright, not an earned right. Because there's times that he's probably lost it, but he can't lose it. All right, we got to keep going because I got off track there. We're going to keep going. Um, the older brothers in this room, salvation needs to be accepted, not earned. That's hard for us. Driven. Goal-oriented. We, we want to earn it. We want to prove ourselves instead of just accept it. We need to understand that, like we talked about last week, we can't build enough stairs to reach heaven, but we need to accept that the rescuer comes down to us, that we are loved as we are and for who we are. And I will say this. If you have a good father, you know you are loved. Some of you, unfortunately, have not had that experience on earth. But I promise you, there is a Father who loves you. You may have not heard that in the words of a male to you directly, but God throughout the Scriptures is telling you that over and over and over again. He runs to both sons. He goes out and embarrasses himself so that he can show his love to both sons. We need to understand that. All right, we see the older son, we see the younger son, but Henry Nouwen, in his book, The Return of the Prodigal Son, will say the focus is on the father. We need to see the father for who he is and how he acts because he's the one that's teaching what Jesus wants to convey. So let's finish up with the father now. It's the father who sees his sons, one that is far off and one that's outside the party. He sees both of his sons because he's watching for them because he loves them. The father offers his love freely. He sprints down the road, undignified in his day, to get and throw his arms around, taking on the shame that would be given to his son. He says, no, put that shame on me. To the other son, while the party is going on, he leaves all of the guests to go see that wayward older son. The father desires his sons to experience his love. He doesn't force it upon them, but he offers it freely to them. He says to the younger, I'm throwing a party for you. To the older, everything I have is yours. 
and the father rejoices when a son returns home. If you look at verse 10 in your Bibles, it says that this it's a celebration when the lost are found. Henry Nouwen says this, Here is the God I want to believe in. This is good stuff. A father who from the beginning of creation has stretched out his arms in merciful blessing, never forcing himself on anyone, but always waiting, never letting his arms drop down in despair, but always hoping that his children will return so he can speak words of love to them and let his tired arms rest on their shoulders. God, as our Father, sees us whether we're long away or whether we're right there and we think we're home. God, our Father, does not force His love on us, but He desires us to accept it, to believe in it. He wants to share His love with all people. 1 Timothy 2, 4. It says that Jesus, as our Savior, desires all people to come to a knowledge of salvation and a knowledge of the truth. That's why the Gospel is sent to every crack and crevice of this globe. Finally, God celebrates when we return home. Now and writes the last quote from him. God is the Father who watches and waits for His children, who runs out to meet them and embraces them, who pleads with them and begs them to come home. Catch this line. God wants me as much as I want Him. God wants me to find me as much as I want to find him. Students, today we've opened a familiar passage, but I don't want you to leave without understanding that God desires you, that he runs to you, that he loves you, that he cares for you, that he pleads for you to step away from your self-righteousness and self-pity and to join him in the celebration. For some of you, you don't hear, I love you, but yet the Word today is teaching that very clearly. You are loved and desired as you are. It's your birthright. Your past hasn't disqualified you. He doesn't care where you've been, what you've done, how you've lived, but that you just come home. But I don't want us to miss this final step either. You can throw it on the screen. Returning to the Father is not the ultimate call. No, the ultimate call of us as Christians is this. Here is how we don't graduate from this gospel story. Because becoming like the Father is what we are all called to do. If we have surrendered our life to Jesus as Savior and Lord, now it is our turn to be His ambassadors to a hurt and dying, lost and lonely world, and to be like this Father who runs to the far off and goes outside to the self-righteous and says, come and experience a love like you have never understood before in your life. It is our job. Those of us who have received the lavish love of God to be tasked with being like the Father to all those we interact with. Because changed lives live changed lives. And God uses changed lives to change lives. This is how we are called to live. So whether we have realized we were wayward and we have repented, or whether we were self-righteous and we have repented, we now have a duty to live as the Father. Seeing and seeking the lost, running to and stepping out of the party for the sake of those who are wayward, loving and urging them to accept the love of God and displaying grace and mercy. As sinners made sons and called saints, we must embrace this new role. As ambassadors of God, we are to display His character to the world. It says early on in Genesis, we are image bearers of God. 
We were made in His image. And as Christians, as those who have surrendered our life to learn to live and love like Jesus, we need to bear His image. We need to bear His love. We need to bear His mercy. We need to bear His grace. And we need to bear His forgiveness. And when we don't, we are failing to be His true ambassador. I don't know where you are in this story today. But nobody gets a pass. Some of you are wayward, pursuing a life that you think will provide happiness. Maybe a grade or a grad school, maybe a relationship, but you're beginning to realize that that doesn't promise what it said it promised. It's a facade of a fruitful life. Others of you are the older sons, living but not loving, trying to earn, trying to prove, trying to, uh, to gain it on your own, missing that you need to just come in and celebrate. And maybe some of us have graduated from those positions, I hope most of us have, to now being the Father, displaying grace and mercy and love to those around us. Let me pray.